And then we're in a sermon series, and just, I'm going to try and remember to mention it, but sometimes I forget. Um, we're going to have a book that goes with each sermon or a recommended book that we're going to kind of, kind of put out there each week, just as something that you can pick up, a way of engaging throughout the week and trying to go deeper uh, and interact with our faith in kind of those, those ways. So uh, each week there's going to be a book. The book today is um, Why the Bible Matters by a friend of mine, Mike Erie, who used to be the teaching pastor at Rock Harbor uh, down in California, and hopefully we'll mention it again, but either way, we've got that, and I'd love for you to um, just be thinking about picking up books, you know, as you come week in and week out. What we began last week, and we're kind of picking it up midstream, is uh, as we began a message on the fear of the Lord. It's a sermon series we're going to kind of continue, but it's the, the passages in Scripture... Um, this is a really cheesy illustration, and I, and I almost was like, should I just pretend to do it, or should I actually have a balloon, and now that I'm sitting here with a balloon in my hands, I'm thinking I shouldn't have brought the balloon up, um, but we're, we're going to spend a couple months just talking about the, the passages in Scripture about fearing the Lord, the fear of God, uh, what we just heard Micah talk about. The fear of God is what makes, the, the awesomeness of God, the bigness of God is what makes the grace of God so amazing. Um, it's, it's amazing when you realize that grace is, in some sense, God-centered. It's about His character. It's about God and, and His glory. We can so often think about grace as being centered around us. Um, what makes the grace of God so amazing is, is the size of God. Um, and what we begin to realize is, is that size of God is on a continuum with how inflated our sense of self is. And so when, when we are small... This side's bigger, right? I mean, it's on a continuum. They're related to each other. When this side is small, this side is bigger. And so as we kind of have a small God, we begin to find that self is really big. And if self is humble, that's why God loves humble, humble people. Um, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will raise you up. God loves humility. Why? Because it puts things in proper perspective. And so we begin to realize that this is an incredibly important conversation about the size of our God because it's relative to how big we see ourselves and how we get everything in balance if we do get it in balance. Um, I should have left the balloon at home. The, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, the, it's, you see something. By the way, the Chronicles of Narnia are, are theology, like in a little kid's book. But it's like straight theology. I mean, C.S. Lewis's books that way, I mean, if you read them, are amazing. And one of the things he does is he, he puts Jesus in this character of a lion, Aslan. And, and you see something really interesting start to happen over and over in different um, books in that series. Is, is that people will go up to Aslan and they'll ask him if he's safe. They'll ask him if he's safe. And the, the way Lewis has Aslan answer the question is, is I think, amazing. But, but Aslan always says, no. No, I'm not safe. I'm not tame. I'm not a tame lion. But I'm good. And I think what we do is we naively sometimes come to God and, and we make God so safe and so controllable and so small and so nice um, and what we don't realize is God is not tame, but he's good. Um, and so this whole series is trying to reframe our minds with this idea that, 
that he must become more and we must become less. John the Baptist, when Jesus came, kind of gives us the picture of what it looks like of stepping back and saying, this thing has to be bigger and I have to be smaller for, for things to be ordered rightly and correctly. In some sense, Sabbath, if you understand the whole Sabbath principle, taking the seventh day or one day out of the week, that whole day, and you set it apart unto God and it's holy and you rest and you let God take care of you, the Creator God, and you don't go work extra and you don't go store things away extra and you don't try and get ahead. You just trust Him. In some sense, the whole idea of the Sabbath was recognizing um, that God must be big and we have to remain in, in this proper order and we have to reframe that on a regular basis, or God begins to diminish in our eyes, and we begin to trust ourselves. And so there's this whole kind of thing going on, and, and I, I, I always struggle with the practicality of sermons. Um, you guys probably struggle with it more than I do, because I'm not a practical guy, and so there's not many handles sometimes on Sunday mornings. And, but I'm a firm believer in this idea that if our paradigm is right, then what works itself out through our paradigm or how we interpret things through those lenses completely changes. But if I try and tell you, look, this is how you should act, this is how you should behave, this is is how you should treat people, you can kind of nod and go, yeah, that sounds logical, it makes sense, but if you don't have a paradigm for seeing that or a heart that's shaped in such a way that you want that or desire that or a fear of God such that there's accountability or desire to honor him, then it doesn't matter how many hooks or handles you have, it's just really, really difficult to bring good fruit from a bad tree kind of a thing. And so the paradigm, seeing God, is kind of the thing that reframes and shapes everything. And then hopefully out of that, the goodness isn't of our own doing, it's the fruit of the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? So I want to try and be a little practical, but the idea with this whole series is we're we're really trying to work on our paradigms. So I want to pick up a little bit where I left off last week in... I was just getting excited about all this drawing. I got this cool pad of paper that Kip got me. Um, And I was rudely cut off by the clock last week. Um, So we'll try and start over. But the idea is this. um, We are, and so you can tell me if this is working, we're, all right, I'm not allowed to look. Kip, Kip sees that as lack of faith. Watch this. Is that red? It's amazing, isn't it? All right. This is God's story. Uh, there's a pastor I like. He did something pretty cool. He, he used the book of Acts as kind of a contextual thing to place himself in. So I want to kind of borrow that. But So if we just take Acts as kind of a, a picture of God's story, the book of Acts in the New Testament really unfolds the story of what God is doing in building the church. And you see, you see these story elements, and it continues. And so what's kind of interesting is this idea of, what if I took and put my story in the middle of this story? Would it, would it harmonize? 
would my story, if I took what's going on with me, would it fit in the middle of this, this narrative and look like it belongs there? So Acts 2, the believers have everything together. They're, they're meeting. They're selling houses. They're, they're, they're giving to each other and redistributing wealth because there's a love and there's relationship. And they all realize that their stuff belongs to God anyways. And I'm looking to buy my fourth vacation home. I was going to say three, but I, I don't want to name anybody in here. And I thought if I went to four, maybe like there's no one in here with four. You know what I mean? So I, this isn't trying to like point anybody out. That doesn't fit. So if it doesn't fit God's story, maybe it's not something that is God's story. And... Peter's in prison and the disciples gather and they, they pray all night and they fast and they labor. Um, and maybe you're kind of looking at things and, and instead of acting like that, you're, you're, you're kind of just checking out your options. There's options out there. Me evaluate and see which of them affects my bottom line or my happiness or or my protecting my image or whatever it is. Let me let me check my options instead of falling to my knees. If it doesn't fit in God's story, maybe it's not a part of God's story. And you see Paul and Silas in a prison singing hymns. They're suffering for the name of Jesus. They're on a road. They're traveling. They're alone. And they're being harassed. They're being persecuted. They're in prison. And they are singing hymns to God. And maybe it's difficult for you with your Christian faith, with your neighbors, or at school, or at your job. Or maybe you've lost a home. Or maybe you've gone bankrupt. Or maybe you've lost a job Yet, you're cursing God. There's a show me or approve it right here, right now, God, on my terms. You have to somehow justify this pain. Or I will not only withhold my worship, my respect, my fear, my awe of you. I will actually curse you. Unless you, right now. Serve my need to be in control, to know. If it doesn't fit in the story of God, maybe it's not part of the story of God. So there's this whole idea with a big God that our lives should be radical enough to fit in the book of Acts. I want, I want to be radical enough to fit in the book of Acts. I want my friends and I want my family and I want my kids and I want, I, I want us to be radical enough to, to fit in the book of Acts and to say the story that we're living out isn't our story, it's God's story. Our fear is in Him. Our worship is for Him. He is at the center. He is big. We submit to that. We're little 
He's big, so we're little. And then he exalts and he raises us up and, and he takes care of us. If you'll turn with me to Psalms, the book of Psalms. Psalm 25, I want to just read a little bit. Psalm 25 in verse 6. It says this, Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. What is rebellious ways? Rebellious ways is saying, I could submit to your authority yet I'm going to rebel against that authority. Rebelling has everything to do with authority in it. Does that make sense? So I could submit to this authority, yet I'm going to rebel against that authority. So what way am I going to go? I'm going to go my own way. And it's the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the sin of the devil. It's the sin of the nation of Israel when they forgot God and God became small. The whole of them, in some sense, rebelled against God and went a different way, their own way. It was the authority of God that they weren't willing to submit to anymore. It's the sin of Judas. It's the original sin, in some sense. It's also the idol of autonomy. It's the idol of autonomy. It's this God that says, if I'm calling the shots, if I go my own way, if I seek my own happiness with my own strength, my own mind, my own resources, making my own decisions and my own choices, I will be able to rescue myself, improve myself, take care of myself, save myself better than God can save me or take care of me or protect me. So rebelliousness is antithetical to our relationship with God. And the psalmist is saying, don't remember that, but according to your love, remember me, because it's your goodness, God, not anything in and of myself. And then he continues in verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. Last week we talked about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because when you really want to please God, your options become really simple and you're able to make God-centered decisions wherever you're at. At least your motives, if you feel really conflicted and confused, you're like, man, I don't know what to do, but I'm trying to please God. At least your motives are purified in the sense that at every moment you're like, I want to do what God would have me do. I want for me what God wants for me right now. And in that, I make the right kind of decisions, the, the righteous ones, the upright ones, the one of, ones of integrity. So the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, is the beginning of my decision-making paradigm. And it says that God instructs sinners in his ways. Who are sinners? I get in trouble a lot for trying to say Christians are sinners. And we, we, we get so caught up in moralism. And moralism is, is like, man, I'm so good because I contort myself and do all the right things. I don't smell. I don't look dirty. 
nobody's got anything on me because I've kind of got my act together, which makes me really in some sense set apart and better. I feel like I'm better than other people. And what happens in that is this really insidious thing if you begin to make the grace of God less because you need it less. And you begin to see other people as sinners. And, and there's this whole thing of where Paul's like, man, I'm the chief of sinners. He's like, I want to go all the way to being the most sinful one and say, I'm not going to let anything in and of myself be what I trust in or what I think is like on my report card I want Christ and Christ alone to be my good report card because I want all the grace God can give and I don't want to pretend that it's anything in and of myself. You know, Pauline theology is, is this beautiful thing of saying, it ain't about me. Let God be glorified. It's, and so it's interesting. I, 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 try to, I try to say to Christians a lot, we're sinners, and, and I can always find the legalistic ones because they'll push back on that. And so I was talking with a friend of mine, and a friend of mine yesterday had a great analogy. They said, you know, an old Jesus movement person had this story of they went to this camp, and this camp was for Presbyterians, but it was run by a bunch of convicts that, from a prison up there. And so the convicts kind of did the cleaning, the cooking, whatever, as part of their prison thing. Here's these Presbyterians enjoying it. And this guy goes and, and is leading them in worship. And so the convicts, of course, are wearing their own clothes. So they all sit on one side. And the Presbyterians are all sitting on the other side, if you can picture it. And so they're singing. And so the, the worship leader leads them in amazing grace. And they're singing amazing grace. And then all of a sudden, the worship leader says, Now only the sinners... Meaning what? If you've been set free by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, then belt it out, right? It's like all of us now as sinners, let's rejoice in this amazing grace. You know what happened? All the convicts looked around and said, yeah, it's us. And they started just belting it out. And all the Presbyterians kind of, this isn't against Presbyterians, all the, I'm going to get in trouble. I mean, I was told to me that way, but insert your whatever. Um, I get in trouble sometimes, and I'll promise you this, and call me on it if I ever do it, but broad generalizations for me are fair game. You'll never hear me talk bad about another church in town or another church leader in town. But if we can't talk about categories, then we can't have a meaningful conversation. Okay, so that's my agreement with you. Does that make sense? Okay, so the... I don't know. So I was... So, so a mixed group of denominations <laughs> kind of got confused and they hear the convicts singing and, and, and they just kind of didn't know what to do. We get, it's such a foreign concept. I mean, we should get some prison clothes and just walk around and remind ourselves that none of us are righteous. None of us, not one. And if we're trusting in our righteous deeds, they become a stumbling block for us. That's why Paul's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. I, I offer it all to God, but I don't want to claim it to me because what I really want to claim is, is, is the grace of Christ because it's sufficient, it's complete, it's 100%. Mine, the best I could do, Mother Teresa, the, the, the 40% righteous that I could be in and of myself does not get me over the hump. So no matter how great I can do, I don't want it. It's a stumbling block because it's going to trick me into holding it instead of holding what God's got for me. So 
God instructs sinners, us, in his ways. Those who fear God are going to be obedient. He guides the humble in what is right. And he teaches them his way. Do you want to know God's way? It's real simple. Just want to know it more. Be small enough and be sold out enough to be willing to do in faith whatever God wants of you. And you're going to begin to learn that his will becomes a lot clearer All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. Now here we go. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man or the woman that fears the Lord? Question. Doesn't matter who it is because he will instruct him or her in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. God will be their caretaker, their provider, The Lord confides in those who fear him. The beauty of this story is that all these people knew they were with God. All these people had relationship with God. All these people were a part of God's story. All these people had peace, not because of circumstances, but because of the intimacy they had with God. The Lord confides in those who fear him. Have you ever wanted to know the will of God? Man, that's, I'm the God of the universe, what does he think about my life? About my job, my career, my choices, my money, my time, my pleasure? That friend over there that I don't know if I trust him. I wish I knew if God could just tell me whether that guy really was rotten or not. You know what I mean? Like, I just, man, if I just knew what God thought of stuff. God, would you confide in me? I'm sorry. The answer is yes. If you are small and you don't rebel against his authority, you, you submit, you bow a knee under that authority. Say, God, whatever you want, I want to be a part of your story. I don't want my own. I don't want self. I don't want individualism. I don't want autonomy. I want you. I want the peace of being with you. I want that kind of blessing. That's all I want, God. So you just instruct me. You just tell me. And if it's just one step and I can't see the rest, I'll take that step. The Lord confides in those who fear him. It's true, you know. A bunch of you here know that. Those times when you're really sold out, you, you had clarity, didn't you? Or the people that you know that are really sold out, they, they have clarity, don't they? If you've never known that or you don't know those people, find somebody like that. Let that be like encouragement, hope for you. Like, wow, this isn't an empty promise. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them, his promises. For my eyes are ever on the Lord. For only he will release my feet from the snare. Here's what we do. We have our own story. This is me. Now, I, I like the idea of God. I want God. God's, I mean, you know. 
why wouldn't you help yourself to a little bit of God? You know, it, it makes for a good mix. So I'll, I'll put God, I'll even put him in a pretty good spot up here. That's God. And I've got my other things, you know, big, big pieces, little pieces. And what I pretty soon begin to realize is God has opinions about those things. They're, it's not working. Kip. I'm just kidding. Is it working now? You know why it wasn't working? I selected black. (laughs) It's not funny. All right. So God has opinions. It's really inconvenient. You know, I have a friend, Ed Underwood, down in a church of the open door, and he's preaching through First Peter. First Peter is all about suffering. Suffer well for Christ is like the story of First Peter. And, and Ed, my buddy Ed's got people coming to him and say, yeah, we're not coming to church anymore. We're not coming to church anymore. It's, uh, we don't like it. It's distasteful to us. Um, we're having a hard time with that, so we're actually just going to stop coming. God... And this, this story of his says something about everything in some sense. And so this little convenient God that we put up there that was supposed to be a genie, that like we could, we could rub him and get him to come out of the bottle. He's really big and powerful, but yet he's under our control because he's in our story. And so every once in a while, God, what do you think about this? Or God, I need help. Or God, you know, hey, you know genie in the bottle. Like when Robin Williams was the genie in Aladdin's lamp, you know, and and so if you picture that God is like Robin Williams, it's not God. It's not, and we kind of were excited about all the positive things God was going to do for our life, and then all of a sudden He starts making us feel guilty about certain things. It's like having your mom in the room when you're like in high school; it doesn't work. Um, and so what we do is we, we, we kind of wall off God a little bit. Put him in a compartment, which is prelude to putting him in a, a box, right? And then it works for a while. I can kind of do my own thing, and I can put a Christian or religious veneer over it. I can even... Um, throw up a Hail Mary prayer to God once in a while, and I can, I can begin to feel like I've ordered my life kind of the way I want it. But my God is not the God. I have no fear of the Lord. I'm not, I'm not in awe of Him. He's not at the center. I'm not submitted. This is a, a really subtle way of rebelling against truth. And so in this story, the fourth home makes sense. I can justify it. You know what? It's an investment or um, I work really hard, so you know, it's a great excuse for me to spend time with my family. It's, God would want that. James Dobson said it, would, it was okay, you know. Um, it wasn't a knock on James Dobson. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just we can use family to justify ungodly things is what I'm saying. Does that make sense? Family can become an idol. That's why Jesus says, 
you're going to hate your wife and your mother and your kids and your brother. And what's he saying there? The, there's nothing that should be between you and God. Now, God is going to turn right around. And he's going to tell you to love and to lay down your life for your wife. But don't you dare for a second put that on, on, the, on the, the altar and make that the throne would be the better way of saying that. Don't you make that your God, your idol. So Jesus says some really paradoxical things, and we just begin to realize he's saying, you fear God, and he'll instruct you in how to be righteous, loving, good, but don't you put anything else in God's place. And we can put family in God's place. And so pretty soon we begin to realize that anger at God can fit here. You're not blessing me enough. It's your job after all. I've got a lot of pain in my life. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of circumstances that are out of whack. And, and we begin to get angry at this God because he's not doing in some sense what what we gave him room to do. And we begin to go look for other options. Let me, let me go to different places. Try old things. Try new things. I'm going to go find what works for me. And I have a whole culture that will back me with that. Whatever makes you happy. What's true? Yeah, whatever makes you happy is true. Whatever works for you is cool. We've got a whole culture that will tell you you're okay. And so the me here begins to find its own way. And the whole time God gets smaller and smaller. And we just put them in a box. This isn't, this isn't God's story. I want my kids... It's frustrating. I got a lot of travel coming up in the next six months. And then yesterday I was at a golf tournament because it was for the Kilns College and my kids went to the pumpkin patch. And I literally almost cried when I got home last night and I said to Tamara, I feel like I'm becoming that dad. Their memory of the pumpkin patch is going to have dad not in it. And, and I grieve over that and I want to take control and say, God, I've got a better way of doing this. And I pray, and God's, you know, God's like, it's okay. You trust me to provide the opportunities for your family, but more important than you being at the pumpkin patch is that your kids see you every day being enamored with me. That when you go on trips, they understand why you go on those trips, because you're trying to serve people, and that your God is so big it consumes you. And that that taints and colors and affects the way you treat them and the way you serve the family, even when you're tired, even when you can't go on. And, and that's what really matters. You're going to be there, Ken. But just being around them doesn't matter if you're not the right example. And so I, just, I want all of us to be able to put our story here and say we're crazy enough for God. We're crazy enough to be written into his story. There's probably a lot of people in the first 30, 40 years of Christianity. Which ones do you think got into the book of Acts? That freaky, sold-out person, five people over from you. That just wanted nothing, nothing. God plus nothing, that's all I want. I mean, that's the person that makes it into the book of Acts. So I want that. I want that for us. Here's a couple things that happen when we sell out to God's story, do you see these building blocks here? Let me highlight them. 
when we sell out to God's story, we become a spiritual temple. It says that in 1 Peter. We get built into his team, his body, what he is doing through a whole lot of us knit together. What happens when we're sold out to God and we fear him and he's big and autonomy goes away, individualism goes away, we get church. We get it. We want it. We want to be around other people like us. We want to be able to serve other people that are on their way to becoming like that. We come in because we're beat up and we need encouragement from people like us. Church becomes a big thing in this scenario. You know what becomes a big thing when we're worshiping the idol of autonomy? The me and God movement, which is everywhere right now. It's like one of the most frustrating things to me. Man, I've gave, given my life to the church, the bride of Christ. There's going to be here 200 years from now. You know what's not going to be here 200 years from now? The stupid little coffee shop where I have my own church, me and God. My own idea. God, I've, I'm going to create my own little time for us. And I'm not going to deal with any of the messiness of church. I'm not going to give anything to church. I don't need church. It's a lot better if it's just the two of us. Why? Because that feels so much more important and valuable and clean. You want to be with Jesus? Avoid people. You can hear God in solitude so much better than you can around people. You want to become like Christ? Enmesh yourself in community. When the messiness of people is all around, you are forced to learn what it means to be like Christ. Where you accept people the way they are, you love them despite the way they are, you return goodness even when badness comes at you. When you want to become like Christ, you put yourself in community. God wants us all to grow in Christ-likeness. You know where he wants us to be? In community. You know, the funny thing is, is churches, it's amazing. At any given time, you have like 20 to 40% of the people wandering around, going into small groups, or finding other people and going, man, our church is really messed up. As if that's a, like, something's wrong here. It's made up of people, 100% people. That's all church is, is people that are messy. And so when we see that Antioch is messy, it's messed up, doesn't work right, doesn't function right, doesn't do or act or behave the way I think it should, and, and it's just frustrating. We don't tear it down by gossiping or critiquing or being against it. We embrace it and say, this is the bride of Christ. These are other hurting people. I'm goofy, they're goofy, we're all good. This is how we get sanctified, by learning to love one another like Christ loved us. This is all part of the plan. God put me here because this church is messy and it needs redeeming. And I can be something that, that builds it up or tears it down. The people that think they're too perfect for the messiness of church, Jesus called that legalism, Paul called that legalism, and it was said to, to be like yeast. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. It's go all through the church and destroy the church. But grace... The gospel grace, Paul's like, man, when that comes, just that's what, what, what glues you all together. And Christ is at the center providing the example. And nobody's better than anybody else. And, and the more noble gifts, Paul says, that think they're more important are no more important than the appendix, which I heard recently is like now 
proven to have value. <laughs> like it used to be like a vestigial organ, like we didn't need it, just take it, throw it away. But now it's like part of your immune system or something. I don't know. But it's got value. We all have value. When we respect God, then we respect the institutions of God. When we don't respect God, we don't respect the institutions or the people that God has put in authority. When we don't respect God, we don't respect marriage. When we don't respect God, we don't respect family. When we don't respect God, we don't respect church. There's another one here. When we don't respect God, we don't respect Scripture. When we don't respect God, we don't respect Scripture. The size of our God will, will manifest itself in how much we value God's Word. How much we care about Scripture is a diagnostic question for how big our God really is. So it's no small thing that most Christians own 3.4 Bibles and never open one of them. Christians who worship individualism and worship autonomy, American Christians who worship individualism and, and worship autonomy and want it kind of our way and we kind of go this way. We have so many Bibles compared to people in this world, yet we never open them because that's not really where we're at. That's not what we want to do with our time right then. I've got things I need to do. I've got places I got to go. I got people I want to be with. I've got relaxation in front of the TV that needs me. I've got all sorts of things. And frankly, this is my time. I don't really see how much scripture is going to give me that, that I need for this little box I've got, this little compartment in my life. I mean, I kind of already know the stories. That's enough. I kind of get God, who God is, that's enough. That, that box, that compartment, I've already got sufficient information for it to be labeled correctly. I, I, so I, I don't have time or energy for that. I got other things that need to work out. I got other things that need me, other things I want to do. When we're consumed with God and our lives are messy because of it in a different kind of way like suffering circumstances who knows what or even we have tough decisions to make we are in God's story that's the context so we read his scriptures his word to figure out since I'm in your story and I don't know where to go or what to do let this show me how you work this thing out so that I know what my next step is the people that search the scriptures are people that are hungry to hear from God or go to the Psalms and be comforted by God. Have you ever had just the worst week of your life and you open to the book of Psalms and you hear articulated the same things that you're going through and you read it and you're like, God gets it. Not only does he understand me, but he put it in the Bible. Like, this is not catching him off guard. There's a comfort from that that is better than any episode of Grey's Anatomy. I swear it to you. And so when we don't respect God, we don't respect the institutions that God has set up, we don't respect his scriptures. The book that I have for you um, is relevant. It's from a guy that's a cool dude. 
that believes in the Bible and wrote Why the Bible Matters, Rediscovering Its Significance in an Age of Suspicion. Pick it up. Try and begin that conversation of, God, I want to switch from self to being knit in with where you want me. The last thing here, if we get, resp- uh, get rid of God and we don't respect the institutions of God or persons that God would set in authority over us, you know what else happens? We worship youth. Which obviously doesn't fit us, so we'll move on. Um, we worship youth. Why? Because they're prettier, faster, stronger. They have more drive. They have more energy. They have more ambition. They are better at autonomy. And so we worship that. We wish we were that. If only I could be Justin Bieber with that haircut. Like, if only I could be, you know, I mean, man, like we worship youth culture and we, we, we try to, to remain there and be it and all that. That's so radically different from what God set up. Who are the persons of respect and honor all throughout Scripture? It's the elders. It's those who have become wise that can tell you something about God's story and about how God orders things, about life and decision-making and consequences. And the younger look up to the older and respect the older because that's the institution that God has put there. And you, you put yourself under that. And you are blessed by it because you grow in the right kind of things. Not just which wrinkle cream. or You grow in the right kinds of things. The things that has to do with, with life and godliness and contentment. The secret, the knowledge of being content, which is not an easy thing. So this institution of, of age or wisdom, we don't respect it. We worship the idol of autonomy. We do that in the church, too. Here's, here's something I want you to write down that has nothing to do with the sermon, but it's relevant. Gossip is pro-autonomy and anti-community. Gossip is pro-autonomy and anti-community. Gossip is the art and science of building and protecting the idol of autonomy. Self is my God. So it's really important that I keep it high. I keep you guys from finding out the real things about me. You know, I want you to know, like, me on my best day, that, I, that ideal self that I've got in my head. That's what I want you guys thinking. I don't want you knowing the real self. I'm going to protect that image. I'm going to protect myself and my illusions. How am I going to do that? I will scorch any of you that come close to touching it. I will attack, slander, gossip, undercut any of you that threaten to pull back the curtain on the yellow brick road guy. Who was that? The wi- oh, the wi- that's d- difficult. The wizard. Was it the wizard? Yeah, you, you, you touch my yellow curtain and, man, I'll get you. What was that? The reaper? The green, the green curtain. You touch my green curtain. It's a yellow brick road. It's a green curtain. Uh, but you know what I'm saying? I, I don't let God defend me. You know why? Because he won't. He won't defend that. He actually wants your false self 
to be destroyed because it's an idol set up against him. He won't protect that false image you're creating. If God won't protect it, we've got to take matters into our own hands. And so when we worship the idol of autonomy, we get really good at gossip. Youth culture is really good at gossip. You know, I read an article, there's actually a whole book on it, that's saying we're becoming more right brain, more creative than we ever have. Less literate, less linear, less logical, because everything is interactive. Everything is kind of in that sphere of the brain that becomes more creative. You know what else is more magnified, the less rule-bound and structured you are? Gossip can grow more in that side of the hemisphere of your brain. Just saying. So we actually struggle in this society, this culture, this generation we're growing into with gossip. What is gossip? It is the art and science of building and protecting the idol of autonomy, the false self. My buddy Ed Underwood, he's going through 1 Peter. And he's talking about suffering Christians. He gets most of the way through the first four chapters. And he's been talking about how Peter is trying to encourage suffering Christians and exhorting them to suffer well. And then his conclusion as he gets to chapter 4 is this. Suffering Christians need a healthy church. Why does it matter that we have healthy churches? Because by golly, suffering Christians desperately need healthy churches. And then Ed goes on to chapter 5. And if you go surf on to Church of the Open Door and listen to his sermon from last Sunday, you'll be blessed It's on church leadership. And in chapter 5, Peter gets to elders and he's saying, Elders, elder well. Shepherd the flock amongst you well. And Ed is saying, we've been called to emulate Christ. And when we're in his story, when we're living that radically, there's going to be a certain measure of suffering. It's okay. Why? Because this isn't our real home. We're on like a work furlough here. And our real citizenship is in heaven and, and we're going to suffer. We're going to have tough times and, and suffering Christians need healthy churches. And then chapter 5 is this. In order to have healthy churches, shepherds need to shepherd well. Elders need to elder well. Leaders, small group leaders, you need to love well. Because the health of the church is going to be dictated by how well we lead. And if we lead well and and we create a healthy context, then suffering Christians will get what God wanted them to have. They need the encouragement, the camaraderie to live this life the way he wanted us to live it in community, together, knit together as a body of Christ with Christ as the head, directing this thing as if it's his story unto his ends. God is big. He's a big God. He's big enough to handle your problems. He's big enough to make better decisions than we can make. Trusting Him to make those decisions or to give us knowledge is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of us knowing how we should walk. Let me just give you the Twitter summaries. Like, I don't, how many characters are there in Twitter? like in a Twitter post, Twitter tweet, 160. So these are less than 160 character summarization statements. 
for the one person who will Twitter him. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We resist God taking over. We rebel against God. We resist God taking over, which means we have to compartmentalize him. When we compartmentalize God, it means we neither fear him or worship him. Worship has absolutely nothing to do with the music, the songs, the environment we set. It has everything to do with the paradigm, the reality of your heart, where you at in terms of God being big and you being small. Worship is completely dependent on our reverence for God. It has nothing to do with style or decibels. When we compartmentalize God, when we resist God taking over, it means we have to compartmentalize him. And when we compartmentalize God, it means we neither fear him or worship him. And here we go. If we don't fear God or worship him, then not only is his authority disregarded, but all authority with him. Sin and rebellion go hand in hand with individualism and autonomy. And if we don't fear God or worship him, then not only is his authority disregarded, we make him small, but all authority with him. If the band can come up, we saved worship, the primary bulk of worship for after the message today, just to give you an opportunity to be responsive in your time of worship. And I'm going to literally pray a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine-word prayer for us. And I'm going to read it to you, and if you are willing to pray that prayer with me, then I want you to stand now while we pray, and then after we pray, the rest of you can, can join in standing, and then we're going to have a time of worship and then close. But here's the prayer I want to pray. It's this. I want to want what God wants for me. I want to want what God wants for me. Can you say that with me real quick? I want to want what God wants for me. All right, let me pray that. And if, and if you're willing, pray it with me. Father God, we want to want what you want for us. As we worship now, let that just be the cry of our heart. Let us have undivided hearts like it talks about in Psalm 86. Those who fear you will have undivided hearts not competing allegiances, not false idols, but we will worship you and you alone and we will become small and humble and revel in your ability to lift us up and to give us all that we need. We want to want what you want for us.